Listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Aloha, shipmates, and welcome aboard Sea Control. Today we're discussing new forms of naval operational planning. My guest is Captain Bill Shafley. Captain Shafley is a career U.S. Navy surface warfare officer, the current Commodore of Destroyer Squadron 26. He's a graduate of the Naval War College's Advanced Strategy Program and is a coded naval strategist. September 2018, he authored an article for Simsex Sea Control Topic Week entitled New Forms of Naval Operational Planning for Earning Command of the Seas. And that's what we'll be discussing today. As always, our views do not reflect the positions of the U.S. Navy, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Sir, how are we doing this morning? Um, great, Jared. Uh, thanks for asking me to uh, talk about this article that I put together back in the fall. Um, and I'm really excited about the opportunity to uh, to talk about it today. So before we can dive in here, I think we need to explain some of the concepts that while you managed to get them onto the page, you probably weren't able to do justice to those concepts the way you want to just based on word count limitations. The first of those is really composite warfare commander concept. So for the layperson, the composite warfare commander concept is how we fight our carrier battle groups. Can you explain that concept? Yeah, sure. As you think about the types of combat power that, uh, that a carrier strike group can bring uh, into the maritime environment, there has to be some sort of an organizing function to uh, to, to orchestrate all of those things um, and get them synchronized. I mean, the CWC structure, the composite warfare commander structure, has been around for I mean, I can't even tell you how long. But essentially, what it tries to do is it tries to uh, to take the complexity of um, combat at sea. Uh, in various domains and give those domains uh, or give uh, command over those domains to uh, to a particular warfare commander. You know, so there's that warfare commander piece and then there's a coordination piece that goes along with that as well. And these are supposed to be the common resources that all of those warfare commanders would share. So, for instance, like air resources, right? You know, that's uh, those are the, the helicopters from the air wing. Um, you know the helicopter element coordinator uh, again the you know the, the rotary wing assets uh, things that all of these warfare commanders are going to want to uh, try to consume resource wise to protect the carrier strike group across all of those domains so you know it's really um you know we built uh you know, we built an entire structure around this uh, warfare commanders right operational tasking messages that describe how you know that describe how we're going to protect in those particular fields we write daily intentions messages to explain how we're going to do that in the next you know 24 to 72 hours so and it seems you know the entire strike group is sort of organized around this uh this particular uh, this particular structure, you know, whether it's in garrison and training up to go out and um, and operate together, uh, all the way to the way that we plan and execute operations at sea. My understanding of composite warfare as a relatively junior officer was always that like the guiding principle of the CWC concept was command by negation. Oh, absolutely, yeah, and I think that's part of uh, you know the other the other bit. That, uh, that is kind of wrapped up in this uh, this discussion on new forms of operational planning is this whole idea of mission command, right? You know, as a uh, as a commander, I give you mission orders. Uh, I give you uh, commander's intent. Uh, I give you a set of information requirements and an acceptable level of risk. I'll tell you what the end state is, and you go out and you do it. Uh, this whole idea of command by negation, you know, I tell my guys all the time, you know, proceed until apprehended. <laughs> um, uh, go, in, go until... <laughs> 
go until I tell you to stop, right? You know, uh, I don't ask for permission. I state my intentions. Um, and this is kind of ingrained in, in most, uh, most naval officers, uh, whether they be American or otherwise. I, you know, uh, most of the naval officers that I've come into contact with over the course of my career uh, from all over the world are, uh, are pretty independently minded people. So putting the command by negation back into this uh, you know, is one of the overarching goals of, uh, of this thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And when you say ingrained, yeah, same experience with all my work with NATO navies, with the Japanese, with the South Koreans. And when you say ingrained too, it's, you know, I just think back to the War of 1812 and commanders delivering notes to their commodores as they were taking in line saying, unless otherwise directed, I'm going to take my ship to sea and go seek the enemy. Yeah, that is an American tradition at this point. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, there's there's some significant ramifications to all of that. And, you know, maybe at some point here during the, the discussion, we can get into that. But, um, you know, we've been experimenting quite a bit with getting back to this whole idea of command by negation and mission orders. And, you know, I think uh, the potential for fights ahead, you know, suggests that we're going to have to get comfortable in that environment again. And certainly something that um, that we've wrestled with uh, as we've uh, as we've started to kind of put that stuff back into uh, or put those principles back into practice in, uh, in our own environment. So. So you mentioned two distinct works in your article, Julian Corbett and Wayne Hughes. And I want to talk about Hughes a little bit later because he just recently passed and he's probably our, our most recent titan, if you will, as far as like the work that he produced and the influence it's had on the Navy. But I'd like to start at the strategic level with Corbett and talk about what we as a Navy are trying to achieve when confronted with another Navy. How would you describe Corbett's varying degrees of sea control? It's funny, you know, I've read Corbett. Uh, I'm sure you have too, it, you know, a half a dozen times in your career, right? I think the first time you get exposed to it is probably in the junior world college level. I, I think I really dug into him for the first time when I was a student at Leavenworth. I need to make sure I say student at Leavenworth. And then uh, exposed at a higher level to what Corbett was saying and, and, and really getting after you know, as, a, as a senior commander, junior captain. And, you know, what, what really strikes me about Corbett is, is that, you know, he kind of takes this whole Mahanian idea of sea power, right, you know, in these, you know, at, the, at the grand strategic level and starts really boiling it down to, yeah, hey, what does this all mean in terms of, um, you know, what what is the Navy really out here to do? I think the, the, the motivation for me to kind of go back to Corbett was, you know, I mean, I, I look at all of the things that, you know, we ask, uh, we ask a carrier strike group to go out and do and, and, you know, and we'll just, you know, separate what may be coming down the road in terms of technology, et cetera, right? And just kind of focus on the, you know, what is it that we're really trying to get after here? And how do you take, you know, a, a set of, um, you, know, you know, restrained resources and apply them in a way that, that achieves, you know, some sort of operational effect or, you know, tactical, you know, um, end state, right? And, I kind of went back to Corbett. I'm like, you know, Corbett talks about this in terms of sea control, right? And talks about it in terms of, um, you know, of, of space. You know, do we want local sea control, right? You know, and in a particular area to enable something else to occur. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit later in the, in the, in the discussion in terms of Hughes. But uh, what is it that we're trying to do and where are we trying to do it? Is it the entire northern Atlantic or is it a portion of the northern Atlantic? Um, and I think um, if you think about that, you know, uh, rather briefly, I mean, you could tell that if I was trying to do sea control in the entire North Atlantic, that's going to take a lot of stuff to do it. Right. And then there's this whole idea of local. 
good mentor of mine always used to tell me that, you know, the whole purpose of uh, the carrier strike group was to put the air wing, um, you know, in a position to do things ashore and, um, you know, into or, or at sea, right? So this whole idea of something local, you know, okay, I only have a little bit of space that I have to contend with that makes my resourcing problem a little bit better. Uh, so that's the whole idea between, uh, you know, between general and local. And then uh, this whole idea of temporary or, or enduring. We talk about this idea of maritime supremacy versus maritime superiority. Uh, we take those terms from joint doctrine. And what does that actually mean? You know, I mean, can I really, can I really hold this, you know, this, this piece of the ocean, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a manner that I'm allowed or that I can continue to do my bidding, you know, un, unencumbered by, you know, the effects of, um, you know, of, of an enemy's uh, approach. And I started to really kind of beat that around, you know, I mean, um, when you think about it at the end of the day, I mean, all of our navies, all the navies that are out there are, are certainly resource constrained. And how do you put all that stuff together? And what can we realistically do? And if you take that, what can be really realistically accomplished and you balance that against what the, uh, the, the bigger strategic or strategic objectives are, wherever that equation, however that equation balanced is, uh, is, you know, is akin to risk that you're accepting in terms of your ability to accomplish that task. I wanted to try to start a dialogue. I mean, you know, naval officers, I think in general, are quick to point or are quick to, to throw terms around supremacy or superiority or establish local sea control or establish you know, general sea control. And we really don't understand that those words have some meaning, right? Uh, and it's our job at this level to take that you know, from higher headquarters and translate it into something that's actionable um, and then be able to, you know, can I really resource that? And that's kind of what I was trying to get at. I ran out of space clearly, but you know, you can't really get much further until you start batting around and understanding what exactly those things meant. And, you know, Corbett, I think, provides the, um, the, the, the right lens to look at that through. Yeah, I don't think it was until I was in a position as an instructor where I was expected to explain sea control, sea denial, and different concepts. Like, I had always thought of those as relatively binary concepts, not really yep. wrestled with the degrees of that is like, do you think sure. sea control is defined as even achievable against a peer with modern weapons here? And I think it was yeah. Frank Jack Fletcher who was given a speech at Iowa State University after the war. I probably need to do a little bit more research. And he kind of went through what the U.S. Navy had done to the Japanese Navy over the course of the war. And it was as thorough a job as destruction as was humanly possible. And at the end of the day, the USS Indianapolis was still torpedoed and went down with, you know, all but a few hundred survivors in the closing days of the war. Do you think that sea control is defined is achievable or is it going to be like, are we now into the terms of degree and more, okay, this is going to be a local event and it's going to be temporary. And that's the best we can hope for. Well, here's the other thing I think you need to, you need to recall about Corbett and it, you know, Corbett, Corbett came out very quickly and, you know, very early on in that whole, um, you know, on some principles of maritime strategy, it was very clear to point out that sea control only exists in times of dispute, right? So to say you have it before somebody challenges you in it is, uh, you know, is, is falsehood number one. So, you know, that's something to consider. And then to your specific question, you know, I mean, is it possible, um, you know, in its purest sense? And unless you start narrowing it down and start thinking about it in, in Corbett's terms, I don't think you can you can answer that question fairly. This whole idea of 
do I have to have uh, command of the seas the way the United States Navy tried to get command of the seas in World War II in the Pacific uh, and try to you know, extrapolate that to, you know, to, to times to come. And I think any professional naval officer um, would be wise to be skeptical in terms of you know, what is actually achievable and be able to influence dialogues with, with other military professionals that aren't quite as up to speed or um, familiar with just how challenging um, that environment is. I think you'd be wise to, to, to question that. Yeah, the challenge of the environment, I don't think could be overstated. One of the sentences that you had in here that really jumped off the page at me was, this condition may be achieved only by the annihilation of enemies' capabilities. And like, a lot of those capabilities, the Navy alone isn't going to have the ability to reach out and touch. Absolutely. I think, and that's even, I think that's going to become even more prevalent, right? You know, we keep saying that we're never going to go into these fights without our joint and um, combined partners. You know, we're going to have to figure out a way you know, to really start peeling that stuff back as a team to be allowed uh, to let uh, naval forces bring what they can into the environment. So I'd like to transition here a little bit away from Corbin and talk about Wayne Hughes, because that was the second work you mentioned was Wayne Hughes' Fleet Tactics in Coastal Combat. Since publication yeah. of your article, he had released his third edition, now titled Fleet Tactics and Naval Operations, and then I believe it was just last month he passed away. You just talk about mm -hmm. the impact of Wayne Hughes in light of his passing? Yeah, sure. I mean, I tell you, there are a few super... Uh, intimidating works out there, right? Clausewitz is on war is a ridiculously intimidating, you know, tome. Mahan's uh, influence of sea power. And, and then I think you gotta, you gotta throw Wayne Hughes in there. Right. And I remember being a JO, I used to, you know, I'd see that, that book sitting on the, uh, the bookshelf when I'd open it up, I think I'd get to within, you know, the first 10 pages and there's just this ridiculous amount of math equations and <laughs> Um, <laughs> yes. Clearly, uh, clearly more math than Shaftley ever mastered in his time uh, in, uh, in in college and in master's programs. So, I mean, you immediately get turned off to it. And I still think it takes a special soul to be able to understand all of the math that, that Professor Hughes put behind that. Um, but I think that I didn't really fully appreciate what Hughes was doing until I uh, got back up with an old, uh, old friend of mine, uh, Captain Chris Sinenko, the director of the Maritime Advanced Warfare School at the Naval War College. And they were doing a lot of work with uh, you know, Hughes' six principles uh, in terms of trying to uh, provide some sort of a rubric you know, to, to planners to think about this whole idea of fighting at sea. I mean, when I was a, a lieutenant commander at Leavenworth, um, you know, going through, you know, the analysis of relative combat power. I mean, the Army guys are, you know, always really good at, you know, talking about how that's going to work, right? Uh, and they have this framework to, to kind of uh, to kind of go through it. You know, and Hughes has got all these little quips and, you know, like to see the purposes of, of land and, you know, if, you know, attack effectively first. And But when you look at the way that he organized those six principles, right, you know, it was like this is the rubric that I've been looking for, right? You know, after I've de determined, you know, this whole idea about sea control and how we're going to get it, you know, this is how we're going to break this down. These are the elements of the fight. It's unfortunate that it took me all that time to really kind of see the beauty in Hughes. Um, I guess my recommendation to any of the, you know, more – more junior uh, folks out there, you know, don't get bogged down in his equations, you know, read the, uh, <laughs> read yes. the middle chapters, right? There's a, there's a lot of pure gold in there and he writes with, uh, and he writes with, uh, with a playfulness 
that if you can uh, if you can get out of the equations, you'll 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 see that quite quickly. I mean, he's truly a tactician at heart, just a tactician that uh, could do the math, you know, and show his work in a way that you know was important to people that that mattered to. But uh, there's a lot of goodness in that book. Don't let the equations bog you down. This whole idea of force and counterforce and scouting and anti-scouting. I mean, it's just pure gold. It will help out, help help you out immensely. I think I had a similar experience. The first time I read Hughes, uh, just like, I'm not going to lie, I was turned off by all the math. And again, it was not until I was in a position to teach other naval officers that I got back into the book. Okay, yep. I'm going to set the math aside here. I'm going to go into the cornerstones. And yep. I'm working with uh, folks whose first language is not English, but we could pick out that those pieces of the cornerstones and use that. Yep. And then at the end of our theoretical instruction, we would move over to a practical piece where we're wargaming for two weeks. Yeah. And the war game would bear out the math. Yeah. That's where we would come to realize like, oh, if I start with this number of force and I know the enemy or I think the enemy has this amount of force, these two yeah. forces collide. I have a rough estimate of what's going to happen when we bring those two forces together. And that point – we would bring in the math and be like, okay, this is what Hughes was actually talking about when he's talking about the strength of your initial salvo versus the enemy. That's right. And unfortunately, we don't. Unfortunately, we don't have the, uh, at least at the tactical level, the the uh, the ability to really war game that kind of stuff out and 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 take the two weeks to do it. But no, you're exactly right, Jared. And um, I'm glad we share similar, uh, you know, similar backgrounds on on Hughes now that we're uh, older and wiser. <laughs> My favorite Hughes cornerstone is the one that you actually mentioned that it subordinates the Navy, the seat of purposes on land. Mm-hmm. I would say it was like the, you know, the apex of my career over in Germany was getting all these German officers to say the seat of purposes on land at, as we got to the end of our war game and realized that like, we had accomplished or not accomplished our mission. We've had plenty mm-hmm. of practice the last few decades steaming in circles or more accurately boxes launching aircraft yep. and missiles into foreign countries largely unopposed. We've had little to no practice operating in a true contested environment where we now have to not only accomplish an objective for a land commander, but have our own fight to win as well. So I think your article yep. is arguing it's time to address the question of how we prioritize those missions before the shooting starts. How do you propose we do it? Well, I think it all starts with, you know, first of all, I, like, you know, I think you're exactly right. You know, right now, I think... You know, again, this Shapley's opinion, right? You know, I mean, this whole idea that you know we could just operate with impunity and and do whatever we got to do to you know to bring the air wing or you know a, a marine expeditionary unit into the fight without having to earn that first, uh, I think is a uh, you know is a second falsehood. How do I propose that we do it, right? Well, I think that was kind of the that's kind of the the, the genesis or the purpose behind the article, right? I mean, I don't think you can really. You can't really have an intelligent conversation at the higher echelons of command about what it's going to cost to do those things, right, before I can even um, start making impact for you. you know, here's what that cost is going to be. And um, we can certainly get it done, but, you know, there's a bill associated with that, and that's going to impact what is remaining to be able to achieve larger you know, theater or um, you know, theater and national objectives. And I, you know, I, I think it's just a much more nuanced conversation than uh, – you know, what we, uh, what we're exposed to in some of the training environments here, you know, at the tactical level, or even at the operational level of war college environment, et cetera. You know, so I think it's, um, it's having the, uh, having the ability to do the analysis, uh, and then being able to, to break that analysis down into cogent things that are described to, you know, to, to senior commanders in a way that make, that helps them understand, 
you know, the, the cost in terms of time, the cost in terms of space, the cost, the cost in terms of force that um, I'm going to have to pay up front in terms of an investment in time and whatever uh, to be able to provide, you know, whatever that residual is. You know, I mean, I think when I first came into the Navy, uh, I was always exposed to this whole idea of sorties and excess, right? There for a while as a department head and as, a, as an XO, I never had to worry about sorties in excess, right? I mean, everything belonged to uh, to somebody else. But, you know, now it's this uh, this very basic question, you know, I mean, to defend the carrier, I need X, right? You get X minus yes. whatever that is, right? And, um, you know, CFAX used to get whatever they want and as much as they want. Yeah, I think it's uh, this whole idea that, all of these things that we learned when we were JOs going through the junior colleges and things like that, I mean, we're just, we're going to have to bring them back into the fore and it's going to be on uh, junior planners and, um, you know, and, and, and folks that can, you know, cogently describe these types of, these types of paradoxes, you know, in a way that senior leaders can understand them. But it's all got to start with this rigorous analysis uh, that, you know, I'm hopeful that, you know, we're starting to sketch out here in this article that can provide some of that uh, back and forth. So one of the major SMEs that you didn't address was Milan Vigo. And I feel like Professor Vigo has been around so long that he predates Naval War College. But he's, he's been around for a while. Do you think that we, the Navy, are failing to introduce these references early enough? Or is it too much for our junior officers who are involved in these day-to-day -day tactical problems? Like, it really is at the appropriate level when we're handing it to the lieutenant commander for the first time. Yeah, I mean... I wanted to, uh, I, you know, Vago is actually, you know, probably probably one of the people that you that you probably ought to put into your um, put into your reading list. You know, again, he writes with that same level of uh, you know ferocity that I mean, he's you know, it's, it's just really hard to get into him. He was actually teaching at the War College when I was there in the senior course, and you know, uh, it's kind of like I think somebody said they actually had him for the JPME two course and. Um, it was almost like a unicorn sighting if you saw Professor Vago walking around uh, the halls of Newport. And it was like, oh, there's there's Vago, right? And I'm like, oh, that's Vago. I never would have never would have thought. But he writes in such prolific detail uh, in his uh, in his level of his level of, of knowledge on you know historical um, occurrences. Just you know, it baffles many of us, right? And it's hard to put into context what he's telling you if you don't have an idea of what he's describing to you, her, you know, from a historical standpoint. You know, this whole idea of time, space, and force, and balancing these things uh, in a way that you know, can can achieve operational effects, and how we get all that stuff kind of synchronized uh, to the point of contact. I mean, this is what Vio Vega is getting after, and I think um, we have to start exposing our officers to this type of thinking, you know, sooner and sooner. I mean, I think the WTI program that uh, the surface Navy has worked on here for the, you know, that is in full swing, I think is a great first start, you know, from a tactical standpoint, I think, um, you know, teaching advanced planner courses like Moz, uh, I think is another great step. And then rounding out that education with this idea of, you know, this purely strategic, you know, this strategic outlook that I was exposed to in the advanced strategist program, I think is, you know, is a good kind of vector, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the sooner we can expose officers to this stuff and explain it to them in a way that makes sense to them, um, I think that, you know, that, that cadre of leaders that we're going to have here in 10 or 15 years is going to be uh, in a much better shape than you and I are. But at this point, 
But, um, you know, podcasts like this, I mean, I think it helps that dialogue. And hopefully there's some young folks out there, or younger officers or professionals in the organization that, uh, you know, will be inspired or, you know, by our conversation and go out and, you know, jump into these things and see what they can learn. Yeah, you mentioned MAWS. And I think from a naval operational planning process perspective, I mean, we're in more of a transitional phase. And I think we're really aware of organizationally. Mm, yeah. We didn't really have a planning process until a few years ago when we realized yep. all the other services were doing this <laughs> and we kind of just adopted the Marine Corps model and then yep. put some Navy terms on it. So, absolutely. you know, my experience with the Marines, I went, I did their PME at uh, Marine Corps University in the command and staff course. Mm-hmm. And they started going into the planning process. Like I've never heard of what you're talking about. Absolutely. So I'm gonna have to yep. I'm gonna have to sit here like a moron in the corner, and I'll be the quote unquote fleet liaison guy. But I'm gonna have to yeah. learn all this on the fly. I hope we're seeing that the transition to a navy where the operational planning process is gets inculcated in our junior officers more than it's been to this point. Um, I don't know yeah. if that's happening. You may be able to tell me if that's happening from your experience out there right now with your staff. Well, first, I would I would offer to you that there are senior leaders uh, in our in, in in the American Navy. I think that are you know highly committed to this whole idea of you know exposing uh, officers to this whole idea of planning. And you know, Jared, your experience at, in Quantico is my exact same experience in Leavenworth. I don't know if your conclusion was the same as mine, but I remember sitting in that you know after being exposed to MDMP for the first time, thinking, "Where the heck was this?" Um, when I was getting my butt kicked as an operations officer on a you know, Harley Burke class destroyer, uh, because I didn't think through, you know, the problem set and, and an excruciatingly fine enough detail. And I was thinking to myself, you know, if I had had a process like MDMP and I really understood it, I probably could have saved myself a lot of, you know, personal pain, but we could have been much more effective as a, you know, as a warship at sea. So, yeah, I think, um, yeah, are we getting better at it? I think we are. I think we're at least exposing people to it. But like I tell my guys all the time, I mean, I can teach you MDMP, right? I can, I can sit down and explain to you the steps. I can run them. You know, we could, you could go to, um, you go to the MOPSI course at, um, at the War College en route to, um, into your PTO, Planning and Training Officer billet, or to my staff. Uh, we can run you through a whole bunch of operational planning team exercises and expose you to it. I think what that does is it trains you how to be a team member in that environment, right, to contribute to the running estimate. But the problem is, is what I don't need guys that can participate in MTMP OPT, right? I need guys that can lead an operational planning team, right? And to lead a planning team, in my perspective, requires a lot more familiarity and and level of comfort, you know, and and, uh, a much more rich understanding of where the process gets bogged down and they can add some pragmatism to it because, you know, probably saw this at Bonico. I mean, MDMP planning will expand to the time you allow it, right? Yes. Uh, If I give you a week to plan, you're going to take a week to plan. And it's just, you know, a lot of it just becomes uh, mental gymnastics for the sake of mental gymnastics. And it takes a, it takes a wise soul to understand that. And, you know, preferably I'd love to have uh, these third tour, you know, department head guys that are showing up to my staff, you know, have that same, uh, that same level of expertise, you know, that, that wisdom, you know, wise, grizzled, you know, approach to that process. Um, but I, I think we'll get there. It's just going to take some time. You're right. I mean, up until, what, 10 years ago, we didn't even have uh, – we, we relied on the commander's estimate of the situation and still a pretty good way of approaching it. But you know, we're going to have to we're going to have to continue this commitment to, uh, to to teaching our folks how to, how to think like this. Yeah, and I said all those things that were critical before, but then, you know, I look at the 
continuum of training and assignments through your career and okay well now you have to squeeze that in somewhere and sure. i'm not exactly sure where i would fit it so it's yeah absolutely it's fine for me to suggest these things but then uh you know actual implementation that becomes a little bit tougher we're all trying it right i mean i think we're all trying to figure this out right all of the organizations that we live and operate in, whether it's the American Navy or anybody else's Navy or academia or whatever, I mean, there's always this uh, bureaucratic kind of uh, rules of the organization, right, that uh, become inculcated over time. And, you know, breaking these types of paradigms take time. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly certain that uh, leadership, at least in our Navy, is committed to, uh, to, 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 making, that, uh, to making this something uh, more enduring. Yeah, and that's my impression as well. But I would say you're now out in the fight. You're trying to implement what you advocated for last year. You are one of the warfare mm -hmm. commanders that you mentioned in the carrier strike group. So for the uninitiated, you would be Zulu and responsible for the naval surface and subsurface fight. How is that implementation going for you? Are you seeing progress and what obstacles are you encountering? So what I what do I think we've been able to accomplish? Um I think we've done a pretty good job of um, this, you know, kind of getting back to this whole idea of mission orders. Um, and I'll tell you, one of the most challenging things that I've uh, that I've dealt with in this tour, um, and it's all on me, right? Is uh, you know, hey, Bill, sit down and write a commander's intent statement, right? <laughs> and uh, try to make that uh, try to make that cogent and try to get it out of uh, platitudes. Uh, and try to get it down to, you know, hey, Bill, what's your vision of the, what's your theory of the fight? And how do you put this thing together? Uh, I'll tell you right now, Jared, if you haven't done it, uh, if you haven't really sat down and tried to do it as a commander, because uh, I think it's commander's business is something that you should do. Um, it's hard. Um, and you read it after you get done, just like anything else, you write professionally and you just like, this is crap. Um, am I, are my people really, I mean, I'm really saying what I want to say here. And that's been really challenging, but I think we're getting better at it. And, um, you know, I think the staff is, uh, is getting more used to this idea of working in terms of commander's planning guidance and, um, you know, driving towards these five paragraph op orders that, that, that you know, set ourselves up for tasking. And I think that subordinate units are, uh, are super excited about the fact that, you know, Hey, I get to, uh, I get to sit down here and come up with a plan. Um, and use my own tactical prowess by just being given something to execute. So I think that that's uh, that, that's positive. You know, we have been working really hard trying to trying to inculcate some of the stuff that uh, that I wrote in this article. And I think you know there's friction anytime you start to kind of um, you start to kind of think through the problem set in a different manner. It's hard to level everybody. You know, you you, you we just talked about people's understanding of the Navy planning process and trying to um, trying to find the folks that uh, that are that are interested and comfortable in that type of a process. And I think we've made we've made strides. I think we're in a really good spot to go out here and uh, and give it another go. I think I'd I'd like to be much further along in um, this whole you know in, in using more fighting functions as an organizing principle in terms of planning. Uh, but, um, you know, we exposed ourselves to that, to those, to those functions, um, here in the last, you know, six, eight, nine weeks. And, you know, I think we, we, we got some take up, uh, but it's going to take a lot of leadership. It's going to take a lot of, um, patience, but I think, uh, I think we're moving in the right direction. I think that there's a level of interest there that, um, is starting to, uh, starting to catch on, you know, I, I and, and I, and I think what we'll find, 
uh, as we continue to progress, we'll see more and more of a need for this type of thinking to be able to kind of inform the way that we that we move forward when we uh, think about you know, planning operations and uh, and executing them as a team. It is heartening to hear that you know this is gaining some traction. One last question for you is, in your conclusion, sure. you said the carrier strike group will be the primary maneuver element in the maritime-based engagement, engagements of the future. Yeah. Do you still think that's true? Um, well, I mean, um, Adam <clears throat> Brown just uh, just released that in uh, his most recent proceedings article, you know, and, and spoke uh, spoke quite frequently about this whole idea of um, you know, the carrier strike group being that primary maneuver on for the fleet commander and um, in, in doing the things that uh, that uh, that the fleet commander deems necessary to you know in that in that joint operating area. So yeah, I, I do. Um, I think we're gonna have to we're gonna have to figure out how to do that. You know, I've been doing some additional thinking um, you know with some of the you know with some like minded folks, you know, here uh, here in the waterfront, you know, about you know, is the carrier strike group staff um, organized and robust enough to really be able? You know, are we do we do we have the team in place to be able to do the same things that you know that that statement of uh, the carrier strike group being the maneuver element? You know, I mean, um, is our money where our mouth is, right? I mean, and certainly not a resource based comment there, but you know, do we is that is that team robust enough? Uh, is it man trained and equipped in a way that? Uh, would allow it to 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 really be that uh, that staff that can that can move that thing around in a way that um, you know is uh, is is decisive you know for uh, for the theater commanders. So yeah, I, I, I think that's true. I mean, I think uh, I mean Admiral Brown wouldn't have said it if he didn't think it was the uh, it was the right way to go or the the right statement. We'll just kind of have to see how this plays out. Yeah, you mentioned the carrier strike group staff and. I've been thinking about it, and it's probably a gross conceptual error on my part. I've been thinking about our numbered fleet staffs and whether or not they're postured for combat operations. I think I've been mm-hmm. approaching it incorrectly. The firepower that a modern carrier strike group has, that carrier strike group commander is more akin to Spruance or Halsey in the Second World War than, say, one of their subordinate task force commanders. Mm-hmm. So do we need to think maybe a little bit differently historically about numbered fleets and instead of trying to equate Spruance's fifth fleet or Halsey's third fleet to the modern fifth fleet, third fleet, seventh fleet, sixth fleet, maybe start thinking about those carrier strike group commanders as more analogous to that role. I don't know yet, Jared. I think the, I think the, um, again, you know, Shafley's opinion here. I mean, to me, it becomes a span of control issue, right? Right. Um, I think that the current process of you know certifying you know fleet commanders and their staffs for you know for MCO type or major combat operations type stuff, right? Having them go through you know uh, maritime operations center certifications, you know, to prove that they can do that. I, th- I think that's that's time and money well spent. You know, I think uh, I think that uh, there still needs to be that. Um, that uh, that layer, that echelon of command that that sits there with other component commands, and the um, that can interact with the theater commander, and you know, or you know, with uh, uh, with the various JFCs if you're in a European construct, right? So, yeah, I mean, I care strike group can do a lot, but that staff would uh, that staff I think would get would would get overwhelmed quite quickly. I, I guess what I should say is. Uh... From that perspective, I'm definitely not calling for disestablishment of numbered fleets. Like they yeah. definitely have their space, and like it's the question of 
span of control and like the level of autonomy that they're giving to the carrier strike group commanders like that strike group commander probably has more autonomy than the folks who work for spruance okay what I'm... yeah hey that's that's a fair point you're uh you know you're you're, you're doing some vago on me here man your uh your <laughs> level of uh understanding of that is uh is certainly higher than mine at this point but i'm not too proud to to say it but yeah i mean you're you're exactly right and i just think I think what, um, you know, that the command that you just came from that is doing these war games and I think, you know, um, the stuff that, uh, that, that, that folks that are interested in this kind of, uh, this kind of analysis, I think, you know, the more time we spend, you know, testing hypotheses, right. Thinking through how all of these things could, uh, could, could possibly impact, you know, future operations. I, you know, I think it's, it, again, time well spent, right. You know, we, we, we got to challenge our assumptions and, and ask ourselves whether or not, um, all of the things that we're, that we're doing at sea are, um, you know, are, are, are going to achieve the effect that, uh, that we really want them to, to achieve. All right. Well, thank you very much, sir. Again, the article we've been discussing is available on the SimSec website. It's entitled new forms of naval operational planning for earning command of the seas. You can find it online using Google, using SimSec's own search function. We'll also post it as part of our show notes. Ken Bill Shafley, thank you for coming on. Uh, where else could we find you online, sir, and what's next for you? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. If you, uh, if you want to try to, to connect there, um, you know, what's next for me? Uh, I guess uh, continuing to, uh, to, to, to get my team ready to go out and uh, do what we get paid for. So, uh, and, you know, hey, man, I really appreciate the fact that you've, uh, you've stepped up here and uh, reinvigorated the, uh, the Sea Control podcast. Um, you know, you've been working really hard on it. And, uh, yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to ask me to come to discuss this article with you and, uh, and, and your listeners. Thank you very much for those kind words, sir. And uh, for the listeners, uh, we'll see you next week.